Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. You've heard about vaccine passports. They could play a part in the vacation you've been dreaming about taking during this last year. How would they work and who would they disadvantage the most? Coming up, we hear from a global health management researcher from the University of Central Florida. And we want to hear from you, too. Documents proving COVID-19 vaccinations could help prevent further lockdowns, but how would they affect our perceptions of risk, especially as more contagious variants of the virus persist? That conversation coming up. First, Connecticut may be among the leading states in vaccinating its residents, but right now the number of COVID cases have not been declining. For more perspective on Connecticut's situation right now, joining us on Zoom is Dr. Saad Omer. He's director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Saad, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, I understand you just got off a call with the World Health Organization this morning. You were on the WHO's working group on COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, Just this week, uh, we've heard Germany um, heading into a third lockdown. Meanwhile, the U.S. is vaccinating Americans faster than other parts of the world. But when you look at this pandemic, where we are today, what concerns you the most? Well, what concerns me the most is the um, the new variants uh, spreading in various parts of the world. Uh, but I don't think um, it's a cause for um, unnecessary concern. So we should be concerned about these variants. We should uh, take uh, action uh, to to preempt its uh, you know these impacts impacts of uh, these various uh, variants that are out there. Um, and so, but we should um, also recognize that we have the tools to address them. Uh, the, the other thing that concerns me is uh, a premature relaxing of interventions, not the most uh, strict ones, but even the ones that are not uh, as intrusive as some of the other ones, and, and then uh, seeing a surge uh, that may come our way. So let's talk about uh, restrictions. Uh, Obviously, in Connecticut, wearing a mask is still uh, something that people are told they must do. But the governor has relaxed uh, capacity uh, for businesses and gatherings. How do you feel about that? So I I have a sympathetic perspective on this. And I understand that businesses are suffering and there is a substantial impact of uh, restrictions on capacity, etc., uh, on people's livelihoods. On the other hand, I think um, it, in terms of the epidemiology of this virus in our state, um, I think it would have been better to wait for a few more weeks as we increase our vaccination rates further. So remember, it's one thing to see uh, to say that we are better than others, 
it's another thing to to have good enough rates to relax some of these restrictions. So I, I don't think anyone seriously is seriously advocating for full-on lockdowns and that kind of stuff in our state. But, you know, some of the things that were in place in terms of reduction of uh, capacity or restriction on uh, capacity for indoor gatherings, such as uh, restaurants, et cetera, and bars and so on and so forth, those kinds of things have an implication on our disease rates and then, uh, unfortunately, on our mortality. The good thing is that in our state and throughout the country, the very initial stages, after that it changed, it diverged, but the very initial uh, stages focused on the highest risk groups, uh, i.e. the elderly. So there is likely to be um, an impact on protecting the most vulnerable, even at this stage, even with this relaxing of restrictions. But but there will be a cost, unfortunately, of acting a little bit too early. I'm glad you're talking about metrics, Saad. Uh, the New York Times COVID tracker has Connecticut in the area of uh, states where cases are high and staying high, where uh, there's when we think of high, 15 or more cases per 100,000 over the last week, Connecticut is around 26 per 100,000. And so is that something that people should be paying attention to? Yeah, exactly. So look, uh, vaccination rates are a, a reasonable, good metric for our efforts. But at the end of the day, we are not aiming to score high in a New York Times scorecard. Um, we are, our, our focus should be to reduce death and hospitalization and disease and and keep it low on a sustainable basis. And so while, again, this kind of, um, uh, you know, the talking points uh, on this kind of a horse race with other states is, I can understand at some level, but our focus should be, you know, reducing death and disease. And so, so, so I think we should continue to pay attention to case rates, uh, also, but also mortality rates, etc., and and because there is, you know, even now, in a situation where things were trending uh, very significantly in in a very significantly positive direction for for last uh, for several weeks, and then after that there has been a plateau. The absolute rates uh, of cases and deaths remain reasonably high. Mm-hmm. Again, you're hearing Dr. Saad Omer. He's director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. As we start by talking about the situation Connecticut is in a year into this pandemic, if you have a question, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Let's talk about Connecticut's vaccine rollout. Again, the governor's administration deviated from CDC recommendations for rollout by thinking about this strictly by age with the exception of teachers. So what's your take on that approach, Saad? I think there was a lot of value in focusing in, on age in very early stages and, and some of the highest risk groups. And even going down to, let's say, 55 or above. Uh, because we know that the risk of death is really, really high um, as your age progresses. Just to be clear, everyone at all ages is an, uh, is at an elevated risk of death and hospitalization due to this pandemic because all, it was a virus that none of our immune systems had seen before it emerged. But relatively speaking, uh, older individuals are at a higher risk and, and a substantially higher risk. 
But then there is also an equity angle. So if you uh, related to where you draw the line. So if you draw the line at 75 or above, you capture uh, more than um, 70% of white debts nationally, whereas only 44% of debts among uh, African-Americans and blacks, etc. Um, and, and, and so therefore, um, you know, having a too high a cutoff had equity implications as well. So going down to 65 and then 55 um, had other implications uh, as well in terms of just not just reducing mortality, but or impacting mortality and, and severe disease, but also on, um, you know, doing so equitably. But beyond that, I, I would say um, having a a completely age-based strategy and then opening up to everyone had implications for those, uh, you know, another group, uh, especially under 55, uh, you know, between 18 and 55, you know, or 16, because Pfizer vaccine is approved for 16 uh, and older as well. But, um, you know, in that age group, there's a huge chunk of people that have high comorbidities. And what happens is when you open it up for everyone, technically everyone is eligible, but then you are not um, in line. You're in line with everyone else. And what does it matter now that, you know, you know, one what could ask what would happen, you know, if uh, we open up to everyone and that we are approaching that stage very quickly. What happens is that even in an expanded uh, uh, supply scenario, we are in a situation where the probability of someone with a comorbidity getting, uh, you know, people with, you know, diabetes plus heart disease or, you know, some of the other comorbidities that are in that high-risk group, kidney disease and so on and so forth, their probability of getting a shot goes down. And it would have been okay, a, a, a difference of a month or two um, in getting an appointment would have been okay in other circumstances. But now we are in a scenario where we have a, a raging pandemic uh, there is significant, we continue, just to remind everyone, the mortality um, is lower, but it's not low. Um, and so we are in that situation where every month counts. And so so that's uh, the concern some of us have, which is that I think it was very reasonable to have an age-based approach uh, through 55. And it was obviously reasonable to add teachers to the mix. But beyond that, I think missing and not prioritizing people with comorbidity comorbidities had had implications. Uh, we've asked the governor this, and he's been asked this many times uh, since he switched to the uh, strictly age-based uh, uh, vaccination distribution plan, and, and they've said this it would be too complicated. Uh, it also in itself presents equity concerns if wealthier people have ability to get doctor's notes to prove uh, their comor comorbidities versus uh, communities uh, with low-income residents. And so what, what was your reaction to that, Saad? Well, you know, that's what happens when you learn about the vaccine system on the job, not necessarily <laughs> familiarize, you know, the senior cadres of your administration with the vaccine system um, and and have that kind of um, a superficial approach, unfortunately, uh, to vaccine distribution, etc. I'll, I'll give you an example how it could have been done differently. And, and just to point out, you know, since we are, uh, you know, uh, the state likes to em emphasize 
the horse race uh, numbers from the New York Times, etc., and other places. Uh, the same publications do not rate us really highly in terms of equity. So, so uh, it's not that we are doing really well in terms of equity in our state um, of distribution, and, and so that this is uh, an approach working. So, I'll tell you. Uh, you know, I had the privilege of being part of the first attempt uh, at the national level to have an overall framework um, that we were commissioned by the directors of NIH and um, and the director of CDC as part of the National Academies of um, Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. Uh, there was a, a committee uh, created for this purpose that created the overall big picture framework and that included people very familiar who have been working with the vaccine system for decades, uh, leaders in public health and bioethics, et cetera. And they came up with an overall simpler framework, much simpler framework. Uh, but, but that threaded that needle back in late summer and early fall. And that framework was then used by CDC for their sort of more specific recommendations in several states, et cetera. And what happened was, that a lot of states did not prepare uh, for, and, and, and that framework and, and then eventually CDC's framework um, and even the drafts of the you know where CDC was going signaled throughout late summer and early fall that these groups were going to be a part of the, um, the priority groups, not precisely where, so although the National Academies signaled where they will be, um, but but they will be, they were considered, they were widely considered a high-risk group. So what were we doing in terms of preparing throughout the fall for the system to equitably identify people with comorbidities? And one of the nuances that was out there was the fact that um, people with multiple comorbidities have a substantially higher risk or certain kinds of comorbidities that um, are so severe that unfortunately they, they don't go undetected as much, um, had a higher risk uh, in terms of death and severe disease and should be prioritized and, and states and jurisdictions should be ready to identify uh, these, um, these groups. So not taking advantage of the time when these groups were prioritized and not actually at least fully, there were draft documents from the states. Uh, um, you know, there, uh, there was, a, a, you know, a, a huge committee um, that was established uh, and so on and so forth. It is unclear that this drastic last minute change, how much input uh, those groups had in the, in the last minute change to uh, an exclusive age-based group, uh, age-based prioritization. But during the period, during fall and, uh, you know, early this year, we had that window of opportunity to be ready for this. And other states are doing that. Uh, so it's not that you know, we are so unique uh, and, and our strategy has worked so well that we are doing so well in equity measures that, um, th that you know, this, this strategy was warranted. So I, do, I, have, I have a lot of respect for the sincere efforts um, and enormous efforts this state has put in uh, to controlling this outbreak and ramping up vaccination. But the evidence, um, the recommendations from the CDC, from other expert groups, and groups that have had experience with setting up immunization systems, 
setting up eradication strategies, uh, and so on and so forth, um, it, it doesn't compute well for, for our state to, to just say that uh, it was just too hard. And therefore, we, and, and, and using, unfortunately, equity as, I wouldn't call it a, a, a scapegoat, but because it's too strong a word, but equity is the reason why we couldn't um, identify people uh, or prioritize people with not, uh, not just comorbidities. So people's mild uh, diabetes may go undetected, but unfortunately, people who are severely ill and therefore at a much higher risk and just someone having a single comorbidity or, or um, a controlled comorbidity, uh, you know, just, just excluding everyone from that prioritization um, doesn't make sense. I think those are excellent points that you raise, Asad Omar. Again, uh, he is the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Before we, we take a break, uh, I just wanted to point to a Hartford Current story uh, just this morning, um, looking into what the state means by providing accelerated access to younger high-risk residents. And again, everyone being eligible over 16 on April 5th. Uh, again, the state now leaning on health care providers to execute this strategy to find people more high risk so that they can get access to uh, the vaccine. Is this problematic? No, actually, that is part of the solution. But that okay. part of the solution should have been there and we should have been preparing for it throughout fall. Um, you know, as a country, we have been reacting to these kinds of things um, rather than being proactive. So I think that is part of the solution. All, all some of us are saying is that um, the change, and especially at the last moment, and, and if you remember, uh, the you know the the systems were getting ready, people were getting ready for um, you know comorbidity-based prioritization after uh, initial age-based prioritization, and, and and this includes people in long-term care facilities and staff, and and I don't think anybody has any concerns about prioritizing healthcare workers based on their risk and so on and so forth, but so so doing so at the last moment caused a lot of consternation, caused a lot of confusion, um, and so on and so forth. So in working through providers and working with them, uh, I think it's a reasonable strategy. But it could have been done and should have been done earlier. Uh, and it has been done in previous outbreaks as well. You can join our conversation again as we talk about uh, vaccines in our state, the strategy ahead, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about vaccine passports. What questions do you have from them? You can ask our guests when we return. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Before the pandemic, most of us were used to traveling when and wherever we wanted. Now that coronavirus is here to stay, will countries, even private establishments, seek to control who visits them based on who's vaccinated against COVID-19? We're talking about vaccine passports now with my guests on Zoom, Dr. Saad Omer, Director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. And joining us now is Dr. Yara Asi, postdoctoral scholar in health management and informatics at the University of Central Florida. Yara, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. 
And our listeners can join as well, especially if you have questions about so-called vaccine passports. The number again, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Yara, vaccination passports have been discussed uh, long before the COVID vaccines were available. So walk us through what exactly is a vaccine passport. Sure, absolutely. So it's actually a pretty straightforward concept. It's essentially would be some sort of digital or paper document called a vaccine passport or vaccine certification that in most instances shows that you've been vaccinated. However, there are some that would also uh, be permitted if you've previously recovered from COVID or if you've taken a negative test within the last week or three days or something like that. And essentially this would permit you to board airlines, cruise ships, and in some cases we're seeing in the U.S. it's being piloted to enter sporting arenas, concert halls, maybe even indoor dining at some point. I mentioned that people probably have been hearing about vaccine passports recently because we see more of our population being vaccinated, but you had said they've, they're being used and piloted. Uh, there's something called Common Pass that's been available since last October, relies on a, a QR code that holds test and vaccination documentation. Also something the IBM Digital Health Pass that you referenced, the Madi- Madison Square Garden in New York City was using, uh, having patrons show uh, this uh, uh, before they enter. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, how this has been received uh, in these areas that's, that it's being used. Well, I think it depends on the group that you're talking about. So obviously, if you are a part of the tourism industry, which is estimated to lose up to a trillion dollars uh, from, from COVID, you want to get things kind of moving as quickly as possible. So you're seeing a lot of the push for these kind of vaccine certifications from the airlines, from airline coalitions. In fact, a group of airlines recently wrote a letter to President Biden urging him to kind of move forward on this topic. However, um, as much as I want to get back to normal, just like everybody else, you know, anytime you roll out a significant change or a significant social policy, we have to be mindful of the potential unintended consequences. And a vaccine passport program will only be as equitable as the vaccine distribution has been. And as you've been talking about, and I'm sure as your listeners have heard, we're not necessarily both between countries and within countries, including the United States, we're not seeing equitable distribution of passports. We're seeing uh, racial minorities, low income populations are receiving vaccines much slower. There are dozens of countries that have barely received any vaccines at all and may not until 2022 or 2023. So then the fear is, if we open industry for a group of people who has the resources, who has the health literacy to get vaccinated early, um, are we creating a two-tiered system of freedoms based on people who either cannot or will choose not to get vaccinated? You could join our conversation, 888, again, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, Before we talk more about some of the advantages and the disadvantages of vaccine passports, Yara, I know some countries um, have been uh, experimenting with this, including Israel. Uh, What has been seen there? Yeah, so Israel has really taken a lot of headlines the past couple of months because their vaccination rollout has been 
extremely fast. I mean, outpacing their, you know, competitors, primarily a lot of the Gulf states and other richer, smaller states by double or triple. I think at this point, they're upwards of 60%. And they've opened their vaccinations to a 16 and up, which many countries do not have the capacity to do. So kind of to in both encourage young people to get the vaccine and again, to bring some life back to service and hospitality industries, they've introduced this green pass, which it's not fully rolled out yet, but at the moment, it would kind of allow you to move more freely within the country. So it's not necessarily for leaving and entering other countries, but if you can show that you've been vaccinated, you have more access to, let's say, a gym or another indoor place that you might have avoided beforehand. Uh, when we think about uh, the people who have yet to get access uh, to the vaccine and how this can be problematic, uh, I just wanted to hone in on this uh, uh, point. Uh, I've seen a stat one in four nations won't get the vaccine this year. And that's not even on our radar here in this country as we uh, fight right. over the distribution plan uh, in our state, right. Yara. Yeah, I mean, we are, I mean, as Dr. Omar so so eloquently put it in your first half, you know, we should have really been uh, planning to get the vaccine more equitably distributed globally and within countries, you know, for, for many months before. I mean, we knew in April of 2020 that we would need vaccines to get out of this situation. Um, and, and honestly, we got vaccines much quicker than I think many even public health people expected. So the fact that we are seeing so many countries that have not received vaccines, I mean, can't even vaccinate their high-risk populations or elderly populations. And then we're talking about, well, you know, what is a cruise line going to require? It kind of already is showing these disparities between, you know, the global haves and the have-nots that we've seen through public health crises throughout history. And my worry is that if we're able to kind of, quote unquote, return to normalcy for wealthier, uh, populations, um, high-income countries, and the, the privileged populations in them, will the urgency to continue to vaccinate, to continue to social distance, to continue to mask, which uh, the CDC still recommends even after vaccination, will that urgency continue if for many people, for hundreds of millions of people living uh, you know, in the global north, if life is essentially back to normal and you can potentially travel to a country where the local population is still in some form of lockdown. I think that really brings up some ethical problems. I wanted to bring Dr. Saad Omer back into the conversation again. He's director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Uh, you tweeted recently, Saad, that vaccine passports are likely to be implemented by private or government entities, whether we like it or not. So the question is to make them ethical, equitable, and effective. So how do we do that, Saad? I think, Saad, you've muted your mic, if you can hear me. Sorry about that. There's a reason okay. why unmute yourself was one of the most frequently uttered <laughs> phrases of 2020, <laughs> and I apologize for that. No problem. Uh, so I, I think I agree with what was uh, said by, uh, you know, Dr. Assi uh, a little bit earlier uh, in terms of potential ethical and op even operational issues around um, these passports or, you know, th they will come under different names, etc., but the fact is, uh, and the, the emerging reality is, there's so much incentive for governments and private entities, including businesses, etc. Uh, not just in hospitality, but uh, you know all sorts of other businesses as well. You know, travel uh, industry and 
um, and, and many other places where a large number of people gather, uh, that there will be, we will start seeing um, these kinds of tools and instruments being used with some frequency. And the key is to make sure that they are implemented in a more ethical and equitable manner. And, and, and I'll give you an example. The big picture is that, that the, the most effective intervention against inequities is, against these kinds of inequities, is to make sure that the vaccine access is ensured, that vaccines are easily available, they're available to uh, people who need it, um, not just in this country, but throughout the world. And I'd be happy to have a sort of a slightly separate discussion on what can be done um, you know, by this country and the rest of the world to make sure that uh, low and middle income countries uh, have access to vaccines. But we'll focusing be, yeah. on, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we'll, we'll be talking about that soon, Saad, but go ahead. Yeah, so um, in terms of, um, you know, vaccine passports and these kinds of tools, so, so they, you know, what we are likely to see in this country is specific uh, businesses saying that, look, you cannot participate in our activities. So, um, or uh, cruise lines saying that this is a vaccinated only cruise uh, and that kind of stuff. And so I think implementing it too early may have um, may exacerbate uh, some of these uh, ethical issues. But there may be a point where the access is ensured and it becomes a matter of personal choice, not exclusively, but largely, where people are not getting vaccinated. So they are on a, a stronger ground in those situations to have these kinds of restrictions. Uh, restrictions. But the other part of it is, what do you do? What is the penalty? What is the, um, uh, you know, what is what are the consequences of um, of not having to produce that 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 kind of a passport? Uh, you know, as the vaccination rates uh, go up, if it is if the consequence is withdrawal of essential services. Uh, that's a different situation. That uh, is more problematic. But if the um, you know if the consequence is if the consequence is that you can't go to um, you know to the opera or, or a concert or uh, an indoor uh, game or, or something where there are a lot of people in close close proximity and and that kind of stuff, that has uh, you know a, a different set of issues and perhaps the bar is lower uh, in that context. But the big picture is to ensure vaccine access everywhere and do so quickly. We asked our governor, Ned Lamont, this question about vaccine passports just the other day. This is what he shared. The vaccination passports is interesting. I've had a fair number of conversations about that. Um, something we're going to look at, not now, because right now, not everybody is eligible for the vaccines. That would be fundamentally unfair. But within a month or two, when um, you know, broad cross-section of people have um, are vaccinated, or at least have the opportunity to be vaccinated, um, I think local businesses, for starters, are going to probably take the lead on this. And Yara and Saad, he went on to say he's had conversations with people in Connecticut's restaurant industry who suggested perhaps they could have something uh, similar to the smoking and non-smoking sections of restaurants in days past for, say, vaccinated and unvaccinated patrons. Yara, what do you think about that? 
Um, you know, I think that has, uh, that brings up a lot of questions for me. I mean, first off, we still want to ensure that as few people can spread or get infected by COVID as much as possible. So I would recommend to restaurants that, uh, you know, instead of having a non-vaccinated section, retain your outdoor dining. People, if you if you choose to have, require some sort of vaccine certification to eat indoors, that's one thing. Um, but I think, you know, we re it's very, very difficult when we look at any any topic that segregates uh, groups of Americans from each other, even if it's in a private business. Um, and again, I completely empathize with restaurants and hotels and, and travel lines uh, for wanting to get back to normal. But I really hope that there is an epidemiologist or a public health person helping make these decisions because as much as industry, you know, their their job is to protect their industry, we still want to get out of this pandemic, you know, sooner rather than later. We have these variants floating around. We have a lot of questions about the long-term uh, you know, efficacy of some of the vaccines. There are many vaccines being offered that have different you know, efficacy rates. So I hope that we can balance our, our need to reopen business and get people back in restaurants and have you know, kids back in camps and whatnot with um, public health concerns because the pandemic is not over and it will not be over until a significant amount of the global population, not just in the US or in our town, is vaccinated. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Kathy from Simsbury. Kathy, go ahead. Yes, uh, good morning. Uh, there are several variants in Connecticut, as I understand it. I think there's probably four out of the five. And Dr. Fauci testified last week uh, in response to a question by Senator Rand Paul. Uh, Dr. Fauci was very clear about stating that the COVID vaccine protects against the COVID-19, and not the variants. My question is, what data is available to show whether and to what extent the COVID-19 vaccine protects against the variants? Uh, Saad Omar, can you help Kathy with that? That's a really good question. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because it is indeed true that one of the major variants, um, for, which was initially identified in the UK, the so-called uh, B117 variant, is uh, a, a significant majority of our cases now, and that was to be expected uh, based on the trajectory, based on the characteristics, etc. But just to clarify, you know, uh, the, the terminology, this is still a variant of COVID-19. So COVID-19 is the syndrome caused caused by the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that virus has different uh, variants, um, uh, you know, and, and so it's not a different species. It's the same virus, but a different uh, with some mutations uh, and a cluster of mutations that uh, make it a different variant. And so that's what the situation is in um, Connecticut right now and in, in most parts uh, of the country right now that the uh, B117, or many parts of the country, uh, the B117 variant has uh, taken over and or will be taking over in, in the near future in, in where it isn't a predominant variant. There are other variants of concerns, et cetera, that I'll come to in a second. The good news is that based on the current data, the three vaccines that are being used um, that are authorized for the U.S., seem to work uh, well against that this variant. The variant spreads more efficiently. It's more contagious. 
Uh, and there's some uh, evidence that it is more dangerous as well in terms of causing a higher proportion of death and severe disease. But the good news, on the other hand, is that these uh, our current vaccines uh, are working against this variant. There are other variants where the data are a little bit more mixed, um, uh, uh, but seems to be uh, the emerging picture is, so the variant, for example, that was initially identified in South Africa, the B135 variant, uh, some of the uh, data are a little bit more mixed, but the data are stronger for the vaccines we are using, even against that uh, uh, specific variant. And even for all of the vaccines, not just the ones that we are using, because if, you know, I'm sure your uh, listeners know that there are multiple vaccines uh, other than the three that we have authorized uh, so far um, that are um, being used throughout the world. Um, and, and so even for those vaccines, there is an emerging picture that suggests that even if they don't protect uh, against the mild disease caused by these variants, uh, there is more and substantially more protection against severe disease and death. And so while, as I was saying earlier on, that this, this is a cause for concern, but not to lose hope. Uh, we are keeping an eye out as an epidemiologist. Uh, I, you know, I keep an eye on uh, these trends and so do all sorts of other folks uh, in, in departments of public health and, and CDC, et cetera. So while these, these variants are being monitored, and, and what Dr. Fauci has been saying is that, that it, this works against uh, you know, COVID-19 um, causing virus that includes these variants, uh, you know, these vaccines work against those um, variants so far, uh, you know, in terms of the ones that are uh, being, um, that are circulating. So what happens, uh, you know, again, there's a, you know, another question that is coming up. So what happens when, if a variant emerges uh, where we our current vaccines have less than optimal ef efficacy against? Well, the good news there is that there are, we have other tool set, uh, tools in our toolbox uh, and companies and research organizations are evaluating alternative options where, in, such as adding a booster, um, either for the same virus, uh, the current version of the vaccine, or like the flu vaccine, a slightly different uh, version targeting the specific variant. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, you know, we are at a, a point where we should make a policy or a clinical or public health decision to deploy any of these additional tools, but they are being um, developed in parallel so that we have more options. So it's a good question, some cause for concern, but so far we the, the situation, at least in this country, is manageable in terms of the variants. You're hearing Saad Omer again, director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Also with us, uh, Dr. Yara Asi, postdoctoral scholar in health, health management rather, and informatics at the University of Central Florida. Coming up after the break, states in the U.S. are racing to vaccinate as many Americans as possible. But how is distribution playing out in other countries? And how should wealthy countries be helping make access more equitable? More after the break.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest today, Dr. Saad Omer, Director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, and Dr. Yara Asi, postdoctoral scholar in the Health Management and Informatics of the University of Central Florida. Uh, Yara, we're hearing this term uh, vaccine nationalism. Can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing globally in terms of vaccine access? Absolutely. So what we do know is there have been approximately 400 million doses of vaccines administered globally, which is fantastic. But only 10 countries are responsible for about 75% of those vaccines. So we are seeing a significant push in vaccinations, but it's primarily concentrated in highly developed and high income countries. So the World Health Organization has a program to distribute vaccines to low resource nations called COVAX. But even uh, if COVAX goes well, and it's it, the rollout has been a little slow, it's only hoping to provide enough vaccinations for 20% of the populations in these countries. So the assumption is these countries will procure their own vaccines, they'll get some donations, perhaps as wealthier countries complete their vaccination programs, they will donate the surplus and several countries have indicated that that's the case. Um, unfortunately, there's current estimates that up to 85 countries will not have any vaccination distribution rollout to a significant degree of their citizens until maybe 2023. So we have really prioritized, as you said, countries are engaging in this form of vaccine nationalism where they want to ensure that everyone in their country that wants a vaccine can get one first, and then they will decide what can go abroad and how they will deal with these um, underserved populations overseas. So it's only going to get exacerbated as we see vaccinations kind of heightening in middle to higher income states. Asad, I wanted to hear your perspective and what role should wealthy countries like the United States play uh, in this uh, vaccine uh, access? Well, we, well um, I think we and the world will be paying uh, the price of the U.S. staying out of um, the global collaboration to ensure access to vaccines worldwide for most of last year. So the COVAX facility that was mentioned, uh, which is responsible uh, for distributing vaccines to, uh, to many countries, including most uh, low and middle income countries, uh, did not have a U.S. participation uh, until very recently. And so what happened was when that agenda was being set, by our absence, it automatically became less ambitious, perhaps than, uh, and, but realistic from their perspective, because you know a, a, the target is to vaccinate 20% of the population of, uh, of these countries, of, of all countries, including low and middle income countries, by the end of 2021. And so, so the goal is unprecedented in, in its ambition, just to be sure, because it is a huge task, but it still falls short of um, uh, a high enough vaccination rate target that will um, have a, a sustainable, that will achieve a sustainable control of that outbreak in, in those countries. So by our absence, um, the, the die has already been cast for um, uh, for for a target which is not um, you know ambitious enough, unfortunately, to achieve sustainable control uh, while being you know pretty substantive um, in, in its own right. So what we can do is to think big and bold, and not just in in uh, in, in the context of 
donating uh, additional vaccines, but being proactive in terms of technology transfer, being proactive that with that technology transfer, there is no restriction for low uh, middle-income countries to achieve get those vaccines. For example, um, in India, uh, there is a very robust vaccine um, manufacturing industry under which usually has uh, you know, either has indigenous vaccines, but also um, uh, through licensure. Uh, so the Serum Institute of India is manufacturing the uh, the Oxford vaccine, which is the backbone of this COVAX facility distribution at this point in many low and middle income countries. But they have been uh, export restrictions placed on Serum Institute of India for exporting those doses. That means that, uh, you know, even from a, 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 a low middle income country, uh, there are access issues and it's not just vaccine nationalism of high income countries so but with our with the us posture um which if if it is uh, forward leaning proactive all of these bottlenecks can be eased up a little bit uh, because it's in everyone's interest to get this outbreak under control everywhere Again, uh, you're hearing Dr. Saad Omer, who is the uh, director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, as we talk about global equity. Uh, Yara Asi is also with us. Uh, uh, Yara, when we think about uh, the COVAX program uh, not being uh, well-funded, you know, we can all wait for, for countries uh, to take a, a step towards that. But I'm wondering, you know, just individually, when we see uh, wealthy individuals, some of them stepping up, I was thinking of uh, Be Like Dolly, Dolly Parton, who uh, invested in some of the vaccine uh, uh, research early on. And is that something that we also need to see private citizens uh, taking a stand? Well, you know, as, as beneficial as that is, I, I really hope that if, if there's any silver lining to this tragic pandemic, that we really learn lessons for how to do this next time. You know, we, we there will be another pandemic in the future, and we can't depend on the kindness of private citizens or even on the functioning of private industry. Um, you know, COVID could have been significantly worse. There could have been much higher mortality. It could have been much more contagious. It could have um, you know, affected children much worse. It could have been waterborne. I mean, there are a lot of ways that uh, COVID was much more manageable than some other pandemics that we've seen in history. So my hope is that governments and private industry and companies and airlines and everyone that's involved is learning, you know, lessons from this that will help us really have a wider public global response. With a pandemic, you can't have 130 nationalized responses. You really have to have everyone working together. And this includes rich private citizens like Dolly and, you know, also <laughs> ministries of health and tiny low-income countries working together for the same goal. We all want life to go back to normal the way it was, you know, January 2020. We can't depend on individual institutions of any size to, to do that alone. Saad Omar, we just have two minutes. Did you want to give us some of your final thoughts on that? Yeah, just to add to that, um, you know, for some context, um, uh, the 614 billion billionaires based in the U.S. Uh, grew their net worth between March and December 2020 by approximately $930 billion. And the shortfall, current shortfall in the COVAX funding is $2 billion approximately. And this includes the new funding the Biden administration has provided of $2 billion now and $2 billion later. I absolutely agree. Sustainable um, uh, um, 
efforts to control outbreaks and prevent pre uh, the impacts of pandemics require combined global actions, not individual reliance on individual uh, generosity. But this is the context um, in which we are living in a highly inequitable world and um, resources and leadership in this area of vaccine distribution throughout the world is urgently needed. Well, this has been a really interesting hour. Thank you so much, Saad Omar, Director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. We appreciate your time today. Also, Dr. Yara Asi, postdoctoral scholar in the Health Management and Informatics Department at the University of Central Florida. Uh, today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We're back tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 